Hello, everyone. Welcome to After the Last Dance, a 10-part podcast series presented by Soul Savvy. I am your host, Alex Wong. And after each episode of The Last Dance, I'll be joined by my co-host, Russ Bankson, to recap and walk through all of the major talking points of the documentary series. Before we get started, Russ, I just want to give a quick shout out to Soul Savvy and their entire team for giving the two of us the space to chat about this documentary series. Soul Savvy is a sneaker platform and community that provides you with the tools and resources you need to beat the bots and successfully purchase the products you want for retail. For more details, check out soulsavvy.com, S-O-L-E-S-A-V-Y.com. Russ, we are heading into the home stretch of The Last Dance. This week, we're going to talk about episode seven with one of my favorite opening scenes. It's the eve of the playoffs in 1998, and Jerry Krause is having a press conference at the practice facility, and he is asked by a reporter if he's surprised by the team's success despite all the backstabbing. What a start to this one. I mean... You know what, like in, in the time of COVID-19, when we're watching all these Trump pressers, and I mean, I guess maybe you're not seeing as much in Canada, hopefully, but uh, it struck me as very Trumpian, you know, just from Krause's deflecting the actual question by focusing on the reporter and the tone of it. You know, clearly the word backstabbing is a bit loaded. It's hard to have a non subjective view of the word backstabbing but what else can you call it like that's exactly what it had been and obviously my favorite part of that clip is kraus just angrily walking off and you have the beat before way to go craig because craig ruined it for everybody there's always a craig in every room we've talked about the inclusion of Jerry Krause and, and the fact that they have not mentioned that Jerry has passed away or maybe even given allowed him to tell his side of the story. I mean, they've played old interview clips from him and and things of that nature. Where do you think in that context, this opening scene kind of fits into just the tone of the documentary in the way that it's trying to paint Jerry Krause? It's hard, man. I mean, they haven't acknowledged anyone passing away except for Kobe, which is weird. I mean, given how many of the principals have died since then, you know, it's, it's weird. I mean, I think at this point it's just mean spirited Obviously, it's part of everything. I think that, you know, the tension that was an undercurrent of the entire season, actually the entire run, is kind of obvious. So, you know, you're just building the tension up as you build up getting to this literal last dance of the 98 finals. So we start the 1997-98 NBA playoffs and the Bulls play John Calipari's New Jersey Nets in the first round. Yeah. And uh, MJ is quoted to the media saying that to lose a game to the Nets in the first round, the Bulls would have to fall asleep. And we get footage of game one and the Bulls barely get a home win in overtime in game one. Do you remember anything? Because like it's uh, later in the episode, we're going to touch on the rest of the series. But do you remember anything, any takeaways from this first round series from 98? I mean, maybe vaguely. You know, at that point, I was definitely seeing a lot of Nets games. And, you know, they were whatever. They were a fun young team. And like they had guys who could score. I mean, shout out to Chris Gatling, watching him hit those fallaways. Like he's shooting baseline fadeaways like he's Michael Jordan out there. You know, then you have, Sherman Douglas and a very young Jason Williams and or youngish Jason Williams and a very young Keith Van Horn and Kerry Kittles like the Nets were one of those teams that were 
kind of always rebuilding, but were always like young up and comers, you know, they, they had something to prove. So it was kind of fun to watch them actually give the Bulls a little bit of a run, even if it only lasted for one game that they didn't even win. Yeah, I was meaning to ask you because I remember Slam putting the Nets on the cover twice, right? Uh, twice. I, I believe declaring yep. them world champions twice. W- were you still with Slam at the time when those oh, covers yeah, were yeah, put together? Yeah. yeah. The first time I was just starting, I mean, I was, that was early on in my tenure at Slam when we did the Champs by 2001 cover. I mean, I was still editor in 2001 after they had clearly not won the finals. But as I always tell people, they made the finals in 2002. So, you know, we weren't super far off from them being sort of contenders, not that they had any chance of beating the Lakers or the Spurs, really. You know, and that cover, that was when Sam Cassell was the point guard. Then you go to Marbury and then you go to kids. So, yeah, I mean, they were they were a fun squad. Do you remember who the point guard, main point guard for this Nets team was? Was Sherman, was Sherman Douglas the main guy at that point? <laughs> I mean, yeah. I love Sherm. And Sherm, you know, missed a shot that could have sent that game to overtime. But, uh, yeah, no, I mean, they were always a fun bunch of dudes. Yeah, Sherm was the leading scorer in the series. And I came across a stat today. Michael in his career was 30 and 0 against Sherman Douglas. <laughs> so just, just a little Sherm. tidbit for I, the listeners. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder who else he was 30 and 0 against. I mean, I'm sure there were some others, but that's that's brutal. That's brutal. Poor yeah, Sherman. maybe maybe La Bradford Smith too. So towards <laughs> towards the end of yeah, towards the end of this game one against the Nets, uh, we have an interview with present day Hannah Storm talking about how. By then, at the start of the playoffs, Michael had already been physically and mentally exhausted, just like after he won the 1993 championship. And that's when we flash back to the summer of 93. So picking up from where we left off last episode, the Bulls had just completed their first three-peat. They beat the Phoenix Suns in six games. And we head into the summer, and this is where... Michael Jordan's dad, James, is tragically killed. And, you know, this episode dives into the full details. And it has Michael in present day talking about the relationship that he had with his father and what the death meant to him. Um, What did you make of this sequence here as they're diving into, obviously, a much more serious subject matter than the basketball? Yeah, I mean, this episode obviously got super dark, super fast. And just, you know, obviously, there's no other way to talk about it. You know, especially the way it all panned out that they couldn't find him and he was missing for weeks. And then, you know, they find the car. And I don't I don't necessarily remember details of how the story came out. But, you know, once you find the car and he's been missing that long, you know, things aren't good. And like just the just, you know, him saying when his mom got nervous, everyone did. But you know, from those first three championships, yeah, you saw James Jordan everywhere with his son. I mean, celebrating that first title, hugging the trophy and his dad right next to him in the locker room. Like, you know, they were really close and you don't even, I mean, Jordan says it a few times, but that's one of those things. Like he doesn't have to say, like just seeing them together made it obvious how close they were. Yeah. I mean, just, just horrible tragedy. And then, you know, compound that with current day Michael Jordan talking about it at age 57. His dad was 56 when he was murdered. I mean, Jordan now is older than his dad got to be. Like, it's just, it just all must be so hard to deal with still. 
Yeah, you know, what, one of the scenes that, that was really crushing for me was Ahmad Rashad remembering flying into North Carolina for the funeral and talking about how Michael was just so emotionally distraught that he couldn't even tie his tie, that, you know, Ahmad had to tie his tie for him for the funeral. Um, and, you know, Michael does, present day Michael does talk about, you know, needing to move on. And one of the things that his father James taught him was to always turn a negative into a positive. And, and of course, at the time when, you know, James's body is found and this becomes obviously a huge national news topic, there's a lot of speculation in the media about whether Michael's dad's death was related to maybe Michael's gambling debts or the people that right. he ran with in different circles, which I thought was just really irresponsible, especially when you were looking at the headlines that they were showing in the episode. Oh, it was terrible. I mean, and you go back to, you know, that Magic Johnson quote, that he told David Aldridge about you guys are running him out of the game. And like, you know, this was an even easier way to run him out of the game. But, you know, as Jordan himself acknowledged, like these weren't writers who were around him all the time and doing stories on the bulls. Like these were people who didn't know him like that, just idly speculating in these columns. And like, yeah, I mean, it was terribly irresponsible. You know, one thing I thought about too, though, is, and we've talked about it a little bit, but about how this documentary has sort of become like, it starts out as something that's supposed to be about 97, 98, and obviously has expanded into the whole history of the Bulls championship teams and kind of morphed into this Michael Jordan documentary. Jordan's dad's murder becomes such a big thing here. And it makes me realize like, do they even discuss the fact that Scottie Pippen's dad died during the 1990 playoffs? Like his dad died during the Sixers series leading into the Pistons and, you know, is talked about as part of the reason his migraine became such a problem is because of all he was going through. And that, that hardly got mentioned at all, if at all. I mean, they talked about his dad having a stroke, but they didn't talk about his dad dying during the playoffs. Like, I don't know, it just sort of compounds how much this has become like Jordan mythology brought to life rather than the 97, 98 Bulls. Yeah, and I think we've talked about this off air a lot too, about just this documentary picking its spots in, in terms of where it wants to tell its story and where it wants to dwell on certain storylines and where to kind of skip over certain things. So after his dad's passing, then we get to later on that year in October where Jerry Reinsdorf finds out from David Falk that Michael has plans to retire. And which, which was a great moment in and of itself with Falk saying, you're not going to believe this. And Reinsdorf being like, yeah, right. I don't believe this. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, <laughs> and Reinsdorf bought the team right when they drafted Jordan, which skyrocketed the value of the team. And now you have him at 31 saying, yeah, I'm pretty much done here. Yeah, coming off three championships. And, and we have this scene from the game one of the ALCS in 93 at Comiskey Park between the, the Blue Jays and, and the White Sox. And this is where Michael is in his full denim outfit throwing out the ceremonial first pitch. Uh, one yeah, of the top Michael fits. Either. Yeah, not a bad pitch, not a bad fit. And, and you know, the, I'm watching this and I'm thinking like, people online have seen that photo probably so many times. And it's cool that for younger viewers of this that they're going to be able to contextualize some of Michael's fits that that was his ceremonial first pitch on the night that Jerry Krause found out that Michael was going to retire and there was going to be a whole press conference the next morning well I was just going to say and as an aside like they don't mention it but that's a way that you know shows how out of the loop Krause was that he finds out 
after they'd already announced that there's going to be this big press conference with him retiring tomorrow. Like Jordan's retiring the next day and he didn't tell the general manager, like, yeah, you, you guys relationship isn't too good. Oh, this is like the 93 version of like Krause finding out Jordan is retiring on Twitter from like a tweet from Woach. Like this is basically equivalent. And one of my favorite things from that game and the footage is Michael drives away in his car in the seventh inning while, while everyone is just chasing after him on the streets. With, with um, like his whole family in tow. And then you have Jerry Reinsdorf dipping out too in his Sally Jesse Raphael glasses. Something I'm very happy to see that he's upgraded since then. Aside, I always love seeing old rich guys in glasses, like old shots of like Bill Gates and stuff. Like, man, you guys really didn't try very hard. You know, and just the idea of him telling Phil Jackson in their private meeting that he just doesn't have anything left to accomplish, basically. Yeah, and you can only imagine. I mean, you put yourself in Michael's shoes. And if you go back to the previous episode where he talked about like, imagine if you were me for not just an hour, but for a year, like the year that he had just gone through and even just the summer. So the next day there is obviously a massive gathering of not just sports media, but national media waiting for Michael to arrive, to make his announcement. And yeah, you know, it it was a very emotional press conference. And at one point, I think one of the reporters said it looks like the Last Supper up there, which I thought was pretty apt (laughs) when you see the people that were sitting up there. Oh, yeah. Um, And you had like Krauss, Reinsdorf, Falk, Stern sitting next to mm -hmm. Juanita. Like, and Jordan probably looked the happiest of any of those people. Yeah. and, And, you know, this just unfolded, you know, so quickly at the time. I just can't imagine, you know, as a Bulls fan or even a basketball fan, or I mean, you can put yourself in anyone's shoes, like put yourself in David Stern's shoes, Reinstorf, Krause, Phil, just what Michael's teammates who most of them were there. Like this was just insane. Like, like coming off three championships, the best player in the world is leaving. I mean, for the teammates too, like, you know, Tony Kukoc had finally agreed to a deal with the Bulls that summer. You know, and like there are other guys who just signed that summer, too. I think Wennington had just signed that summer. You know, it's like the ultimate bait and switch. Like you sign with the Bulls ostensibly to play with Jordan on a three time defending champion and you get there and all of a sudden he's like, yeah, by the way, guys, I'm done. Cannot imagine what that would have been like. Yeah. And of course, once again, the the media steps in and, and there's immediate speculation from, you know, all different parts of the media that did Michael get actually had to step away because David Stern was suspending him 18 months because of all the gambling that he was doing. So they've got David Stern denying that directly um, in an interview and Michael as well. And honestly, looking back at it now, like of all the ridiculous headlines that were made that year, like the gambling thing just doesn't, there's just no basis behind it. Shout out to my man, Brian McIntyre too, who's always been helpful whenever I was doing stuff with the NBA for calling it total bullshit and asking if that was all right, if he could put it that way. Yeah. I mean, there's clearly not even a bit of, you know, idle speculation or anything amongst the people who definitely would have known if this was a thing, you know, I did appreciate Mark Vansell basically saying like, yeah, David Stern's going to suspend his most popular player on the most popular team when they're in the middle of winning to like completely ruin their profits, you know, like, yeah, I mean, absurd. But I also love like going back to the the actual retirement press conference and something I didn't quite remember. I feel like I'm sure I watched it at the time and I'm sure I was just shell-shocked by the idea of like 
my favorite player retiring in the middle of like a championship run, but he left the door wide open for the comeback. I mean, basically just saying like, you know, I'm not going to close the door. Like maybe what I need is to be away for a while and then come back. I mean, he was basically setting up exactly what was to come down the road. And I could sort of see, I guess, if you're, if you're looking for conspiracy theories behind every door, the fact that he's talking about a comeback while he's retiring. All right, fine. Maybe you can assume this is just a, you know, not all his idea, but at the same time, yeah, no, insane. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's funny you mentioned Mark Vansel. He, he also shared that Michael basically told him his plan to shock the world and go play baseball when they had chatted in the summer of 92, the, the summer previous. And he talked about how Bird and Magic had never three-peated and that he was going to get his three-peat and then shock the world. So, so now we transition into early 94 where Michael is going to pursue baseball. And, and he shares that the last conversation that he had with his dad was they were debating whether Michael should go and play baseball. And James, by Michael's accounts, was very encouraging and said that it was always his dream to, to see him as a baseball player. The, the one interesting thing to me um, before I throw it to you was I was fascinated by the fact that Tim Grover talked about how he had to change his whole workout routine because you have to build your body and work on different muscles to play a completely different sport. You know, people who watch the video can probably tell that, you know, I have not been lifting a lot of weights um, during the shelter in place. But <laughs> I, I would have loved to just hear more about just the workout routines because I'm so fascinated by Michael being able to transform himself from a basketball player to a quote unquote serviceable minor league baseball player. And then, of course, back to a basketball player, right? Yeah. I mean, obviously, for any of us, and uh, I also am not doing anything really workout oriented during this lockdown. But, you know, it does make sense. I mean, the guy's the most famous bas basketball player in the world and the best basketball player in the world. So, of course, his, you know, all of his routine would sort of go towards staying that way. So going to an entirely different sport, it is interesting to think like, okay, how do you need to adjust yourself? And, you know, it's almost amazing that he didn't get injured playing baseball, like while he was making that transition. I mean, they talked about how, you know, he took extra hitting in the morning before practice, in the evening after practice. And, you know, Jordan's personality being what it is, like there was no halfway for him. Like he threw himself fully into it. So, you know, he's out there doing all these baseball workouts before his body is remotely baseball ready. So, you know, he did talk sort of graphically about the blisters on his hands from hitting. I also, and I don't know, I mean, I'm not a baseball expert or anything. I quit one year into little league with actual pitching to play soccer instead. So I'm not exactly an expert here, but his, I don't, was it his top hand coming off on all of his swings? Like it was kind of an odd swing. I, I don't know about his mechanics, but uh, it worked for him. Yeah, so I pulled up his official stats with the Birmingham Barons. 127 games, he had 497 at-bats. He batted 202, had a 556 OPS, three home runs, 51 RBIs. And in the doc, they talk about how he started with a 13-game win streak and they would just uh, start throwing him yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, with, a hit, with a hitting streak. And they would just start throwing him breaking balls for like the next month and a half. I Actually, the thing I didn't realize, and I think it was Jerry Reinsdorf who said this, is that the only reason why he 
played at double A and not like A ball or rookie ball is because the double A facilities uh, was able to handle the additional media, whereas rookie ball and A ball couldn't. Um, and, and I do wonder what it would have been like if Michael started at a lower level. And there's this great scene when they're showing all the camera people and all the fans uh, selling out every game. There's a kid asking for Michael to sign a baseball while he's, I guess, you know, presumably driving to the game. In the middle of the street. Yeah, the kid got <laughs> off a bus or something and Mike scorches away in his Corvette. Um, I don't know who was leaning on the horn behind him to keep moving in Birmingham, Alabama. But, you know, I can only imagine what Jordan's presence did for the overall Birmingham economy. Um, I can't imagine Barron's tickets were a huge seller before. I mean, maybe they were, but not to the extent they would have been once he got there. And people not even going to games, just trying to get his autograph. Yeah, and, you know, his manager being Terry Francona, who goes on to be a major league manager. And, and, you know, Terry was pretty effusive about Mike's performance. I mean, the fact that he was surprised that he hit 200 or the fact that he drove in 50 runs and that not a lot of other guys did. You know, and Mike never makes it to the White Sox because of the baseball strike. And he didn't want to cross the picket lines, which makes sense to me. But, you know, I, I don't think they're blowing smoke when they said if he got 1,500 at best, he probably would have made the majors. Yeah, and if I have my baseball and basketball facts correct, so Terry Francona has managed the two most famous athletes in Bloody Sox then, because he managed Kurt Schilling on the Red Sox. Correct. Right? And Michael Jordan, who bled through his Jordan 1s in his final game as a Chicago Bull. And as far as I know, only one of those Bloody Sox is actually real. That is also correct. Um, So before we go down too deep of a baseball rabbit hole, uh, do we also want to touch on the infamous SI cover where they had him swinging and missing uh, at a ball and it says, Baggett Michael, Jordan and the White Sox are embarrassing baseball. Michael talked about in present day how he was betrayed by this and he basically just never talked to SI again. And I believe he's frozen them out ever since until present day. I'm watching this and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, man, I don't know if I'm glad or not glad that Michael didn't play in the Twitter era. Because can you imagine him faving all of our tweets after he goes like eight for 24 in a game? (laughs) I mean, the thing is he would, you know, if he was on Twitter back then, he would have like hundreds of millions of followers. So, you know, I don't know how much he'd be able to keep up with. The one thing about the Sports Illustrated cover that I found a, a little bit disingenuous. I mean, he said that he wouldn't have cared what they wrote as long as they talked to him. And I, I'm sorry. I just can't, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I think like, even if a Sports Illustrated writer interviewed him and they ran the same cover, I don't think he's having it. I don't think he's having it. I I think it was more of, here he is doing what, what he talked about with his dad and his dad gave him this, this sign of approval for it, you know, and Sports Illustrated who ate off Mike for years. I mean, not only all the covers they put him on, but, you know, using like, come fly with me as a subscription bonus. I know that's how I got it. And that's probably why I subscribed to Sports Illustrated. You know, and at the first sign of him showing signs of being human, you just kill him like that. Like, I don't think it mattered if they talked to him or not. I think the, 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 the shunning was going to happen regardless. So one more question about Michael being on Twitter. Do you think he would have been like Kevin Durant? That's a good question. I'm not sure. I don't think so. I don't know if Mike, I don't know if Mike would have worried about it like that. I think Scotty would have been. 
I think Scotty might have been the way Kevin is. And like, look, like we're all hypocrites in that regard where it's like, we want athletes to speak up. We want athletes to be unfiltered. And then someone like Kevin Durant clearly is. And then we get on him for that. Like, I, I don't, I'm just happy that Kevin is the way he is. If anything, I worry a little bit for his, uh, his own sanity. Because, I mean, I know from my 40,000 followers, I can get a little worked up when someone I don't know says some shit that I don't agree with. I can't imagine what it's like when you have millions of followers and you're on national television. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about, Russ. I've never <laughs> seen you exhibit any uh, anger on Twitter. Maybe I'm just not online at the right time. Well, only, only a little, only like 99% <laughs> of the time. So, you know, but to, to go back to MJ and get away from my Twitter account, which hopefully you're all following, um, I won't spell my name or anything. But uh, I appreciated Ahmad talking about Jordan playing baseball and about how like, this was a way to sort of separate himself and, you know, get used to the fact that his dad's not around and, and sort of just be one of the guys, you know, it's like, obviously he's still going to get treated a little bit differently because he's still Michael Jordan. You know, he wasn't sort of having all that pressure on him to win games in Birmingham. He could go out there and hit 202 and have his three home runs and just kind of be one of the guys. Yeah. It was cool. They show that one scene where, his teammates were giving him this like mini Gatorade shower in the clubhouse. And I was thinking it must've been way more fun being a Birmingham Baron teammate of Michael than the Chicago bulls. Cause it's not like Michael can come into double a ball and be telling you guys what to do and punching the starting pitcher in the face to motivate him. I mean, you you're do, batting you 200. Wonder right? How many of the, his Baron's teammates maybe walked off with his jerseys or, you know, with a ball or with anything else. Cause like minor league guys weren't getting paid that much. They didn't bring up one thing they didn't mention is I think as the story goes, Jordan actually bought them a bus. I think their bus was kind of iffy, you know, as it would be in minor league ball. And he made sure they had a better one. You know, I'm sure there's a ton of things Mike did like that to make things a little better for himself. And, you know, why not do it for the teammates, whether it be meals or anything else. I'm sure as, the Gatorade endorser back then that the Birmingham Barons probably had no shortage of Gatorade on hand in all flavors. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm surprised no one like that was his teammate at the time has like written a book or something about yeah, that I don't year know. with Michael. I don't know. Or even, yeah. you know, Terry Francona, obviously, as you mentioned with the dual bloody socks would have some amazing stories to tell for all I know it does exist. I have not sought out Terry Francona's books if there are any. So I could be wrong there. So we go back to 98. So the Bulls had just won a close game against the New Jersey Nets to open their best of five first round series. And this is where we get a montage of Michael being an asshole, being a tyrant in practice. And we finally get present day. You're the layup, dumbass. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's One other of my things. Favorite yeah. Moments. yeah. I'm not going to say some of those other ones. Um, but we got present day Scott Burrell finally introduced into the doc because we have seen him in the archival footage throughout this series so far. And, you know, Michael talks about how Scott was someone that he like kind of took under his wing or at least tried to push and, and openly said that he tried to get Scott Burrell to fight him 
a few times, you know, just to try to get that out of him. And, and he couldn't because Burrell was just such a nice guy. You know, I think this is really the, the segment where, remember before the start of this doc, this 10-part doc, Michael was talking about how everyone is going to think I'm the villain and I'm an asshole after watching this. I'm pretty sure this is, this is the segment that he was referring to, right? Yeah, I think this is it. And, you know, we start off with Kerr. Uh, talking about about if you can't handle the pressure from Jordan, you can't handle the pressure of the playoffs, which is something that Jordan later reiterates, you know, as we go on. Yeah, I mean, his teammates are, you know, it's 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 scary. Like, Judd Bushler has that great moment where he's like, people were afraid of him. We were his teammates and we were afraid of him. You know, and Scott Burrell seems to be like sort of the designated teammate for this section. You know, I, I'm losing hope that we're really going to talk about some of the other teammates from that era, whether it be like Stacey King or Jason Caffey or, you know, the late Brian Williams. Um, I think Scott Burrell is going to be the stand-in here. One thing that that jumps out that is kind of weird to me is how Jordan refers to him only as Scott Burrell. He never just calls him Scott. And I don't know if that's because of like having been teammates with Scott Williams and you have Scotty Pippen, you know, his he just has to call him his full name every time. It's sort of endearing actually. But, uh, you know, it's something that just crops up all the time. Yeah. And that's the thing we talked about too off air and that I'm loving this, you know, discovery of the friendship that Michael and Scott Burrell had, you know, obviously off the court and how Michael saw himself as a mentor to Burrell during that season. You would think that with the footage that they had access to that they could have unearthed um, like many more of these tidbits for us. I'd be curious to know like what him and Scott Burrell talked about a lot. Cause like we said, like Scott Burrell was a guy who got drafted by major league baseball teams. So, you know, him and Jordan did have a lot in common. It's funny that Burrell played at UConn before UConn really became the well-known program. It is like, he, you know, he was there before like Rip Hamilton or Khalid Elamine or, you know, all these different dudes. He sort of paved the way for a lot of them. But yeah, I mean, it's also interesting. We get so many of his teammates talking about Jordan being a dick and it's like, you know, Will Purdue basically saying he was an asshole and crossed the line a bunch of times. Again, this would be a good time to ask Will Purdue about the time that Jordan punched him in the face, but clearly we're not going to get that. And, you know, as a little foreshadowing, we're going to get to Jordan punching a different white teammate in the face. Yeah, uh, they only had room for one. In, in the 10 hours, Russ. And then, and then we, you know, before we jump back in time to 93 again, we get that one quote that you mentioned to me, and it's, it is a really good one that Burrell says about Jordan's competitiveness and about how, well, you can say it because it was, it was your quote. <laughs> um, yeah, no, Burrell's just talking about how Jordan was obviously trying to push all of his teammates to get to his level. And Burrell says, quote, I'm not sure if he knew that only he could achieve those goals. And I think that's a really good perspective that maybe Michael himself doesn't have. And I think like, I think Jordan, I think he, I don't know if he did know. And I feel like the way Jordan worked, he didn't think you knew either. And the, the perfect example is Scotty. You know, Scotty became a top 50 player ever. And for a while, probably the second best player on the Bulls as well as the second best player in the NBA. And I don't know if Scotty knew he could be that good. I mean, we go back to like when Scotty first joined the Bulls, he thought he could become the best player on the team. But there's a difference between thinking that idly 
and actually putting in the work to do it. So, you know, I feel like Jordan pushed everyone on the team thinking that who knows, you don't know where your ceiling is. You probably need this extra push just to find where that ceiling is. And if, you know, if the end result of that is a bunch of guys hating you and one of them becoming Scottie Pippen, it's worth it. And it's interesting you bring up Scotty because you got me thinking too in that, you know, imagine if it was a different player that was playing a number two role to Michael. Maybe let's say it's Tony Kukoc during Michael's prime. You know, does a player with, uh, you know, Kukoc's approaches to the game, like would he respond the same to Michael pushing him? It almost makes me appreciate Scotty a little bit more too because I feel like not everyone would have really fit into that role as Michael's number two and, and been willing to be pushed that way, right? Yeah, no, not at all. I mean, you look at all the guys, you know, look at the bodies Michael Jordan left. I mean, not only Ewing and Barkley and, you know, all the guys who never won titles because of him, but Brad Sellers and, you know, Jeff Sand, like all these different guys who got drafted by the Bulls high and just couldn't handle it. You know, they flew too close to the sun. High as in a high draft pick, or uh, you you trying to make a traveling cocaine circus? No, 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 no traveling cocaine circus. I believe I okay. believe they got a little better at vetting, and the uh, the NBA in general, I think, drifted a little bit away from cocaine after after like eighty six, eighty seven, or so. But we talked about Scotty and the way Scotty sort of you know became a leader through osmosis and through hard work, and then. You know, we jump back to 1993, post Jordan's retirement, and them going into this new season with Pippen as their leader. Yeah, and I just want to read read off Scottie Pippen's stats because you know, you know, the documentary does touch on what an amazing season he had. But just want to give some context to the listeners. So he finished third in regular season MVP voting that year and had seven first place votes, um, and he averaged 22 points, 8.7 rebounds, 5.6 assists. 2.9 steals, and the Bulls won 55 games. And just for context, I mean, obviously everybody knows without Michael, they were not the perennial favorite to, you know, four-peat that season. But per basketball reference, they were a plus 1,500 to win the championship before the start of the season. So a long shot, basically. And you're probably not surprised, right? Like you think about, I mean, the comparison I have is when Kawhi Leonard left the Raptors. And everyone just left the Raptors for dead, right? Like, oh, they're going to turn into like uh, the Cavs without LeBron. And probably not to that extent because they still had their championship core and Scotty was so good. But this was not a team that was expected to win 55 games or make it to the second round of the playoffs at the start of the season. Yeah, and I think like, you know, I have never seen this discussed, but I'd be curious to know, and we'll never know, it's hypothetical, but... How do the 93-94 Bulls do if Jordan stays and Pippen's the one who leaves? Because to me, like, Scotty was the guy who kind of kept a lot of that together. You know, they show it during those clips where it's like, Scotty was the guy to literally help you up. Scotty was the guy who was going to put his arm around your shoulder and be like, don't worry about it, I'm still going to get you the ball. You know, he, he was, had a completely different view of leadership and being a teammate than Jordan did. And I wonder how many people, even while they were both playing together, Pippen kind of kept from being completely burned to a crisp by Jordan's competitive fire. And it's a shame that in what is arguably Scotty's best 
individual season and he finally gets into the spotlight that every time you bring up that season, you obviously, and as this documentary touches on, you have to talk about the game three in the second round against the Knicks uh, when the game is tied and Phil Jackson draws up the play for Tony Kukoc and Scotty just refuses to come into the game. Um, this documentary does a good job here to, uh, of, you know, just giving uh, an overview uh, of everything that happened. Uh, rewatching that sequence again, was there anything new you took away from it or do you have any thoughts on, on the whole Scotty Pippen not checking in the game thing? I mean, it was just brutal. It was just brutal. The, the one thing I did want to mention before we get to that was I loved them showing the Jerry Krause, Tony Kukoc press conference announcing his <laughs> signing. And Krause has to like basically butt in and grab the microphone for a second and say like, you know, about number seven and it's so popular in Europe and a lot of youngsters want to be like Tony, which to me was like a total, you know, obviously version of the be like Mike thing. And it was just like, oh, Jerry's press conferences are so cringeworthy. I'm actually sort of binge rewatching the office as we go through this. And like Jerry Krause was basically Michael Scott. Like he's just such <laughs> a disaster in like every possible way, like no matter what he's trying to do. And, you know, I can only imagine poor Tony Kukoc and his, his agent sitting there being like, dude, what are you doing? Like, we're just trying to fit in and you're like turning him into like the savior, which is interesting because we jump back to this 1.8 and you know, they draw, Phil draws up the play with Scotty as the inbounder and Scotty's just like, nah, nah, I'm the star of the team. I want the last shot, which in and of itself goes against everything that Phil Jackson had been preaching during his entire run as coach that won them three championships, you know, like being the inbounder on this one play, it doesn't mean you're not the star anymore. You know, Tony had hit a few game winning shots that season. Like also Tony is 6'10". And a great shooter, like, he's going to be a tough cover and a guy who's going to have an easier time catching the ball. Like, ooh, it's just like, I feel like Scotty put in so many years of work and won three rings by, like, handling his insecurities and overcoming all this. And in one moment, it just all blew back to the forefront. Like, all of a sudden, it's like, you know, 1990 migraine Scotty all over again. And I think that was what was so painful about it. And, you know, all of that hurt and all of that disbelief is, is summed up kind of in Bill Cartwright's reaction, sitting there on the bench, talking to him like, dude, what are you doing? You know, but we're in NBA time, like the game has to resume. And, you know, Pete Myers to his credit throws a perfect inbounds pass Tony Kukoc hits the shot of his career, you know, that doesn't even touch the rim, like such a perfect shot. And then he goes and throws the ball into the stands, which is amazing. I want a 10-part documentary on where that ball went. How do you not keep that? You know, and then we cut to that shot of Phil Jackson sitting in the locker, just stunned by all of this. Yeah, it was, it was interesting to... You know, you talked about the joy of them hitting that shot. And there's like not a bit of joy in Phil after, right? Like even when he's walking off the court because he knows he has to deal with his problem in the locker room. Were you surprised? I was a little surprised when they asked Scotty in present day. And, you know, he said that I wish it never happened. But he said if he had a chance to do it again, he probably wouldn't change it. I thought that was a good chance for him to, you know, say maybe he regretted it or, or say something about it. Yeah, there were there were some super like, I don't know how you say both of those things. Like, it's a super weird, like, split personality thing. Like, 
which is almost like, I, I don't know, it almost reflects, it's almost a reflection of Isaiah talking about when they walked off the court without shaking hands. It's just like, you can't regret how it happened, but then say you would do it all over again. Like you kind of have to either say you don't regret it and you would do it again, or that you regret it and you wouldn't do it. I, I don't know how you take both of those. You know, I did appreciate Horace Grant saying it was like a twilight zone moment. I think Horace was already like one foot out the door at that point. I don't think that like convinced him that like the bulls wasn't where he needed to be, but it was sad, you know, and obviously like they were able to forgive if not forget or maybe vice versa and unfortunately they go on to lose the series but uh you know it's unfortunate that we get that huge dunk over ewing where scotty like taunts ewing then not being finished goes over and taunts spike lee too i think he did get a tech for it and they go on to lose because of a play they don't show of a ticky tack touch foul on pippen on a hubert davis three-pointer the kind of unfortunately changes everything that year. But uh, yeah, the, the 1.8 is tough. The 1.8 is tough. Yeah, that Scotty dunk over Patrick Ewing, that is my all-time favorite dunk. Just, just the amount of disrespect that went into the entire sequence was just So amazing. brutal. And Ewing like trying to throw him off of him basically. But oh, the, the one thing to jump back with the 1.8 of like, you know, Jordan calling Phil Jackson the next day and being like, I can't believe he did that. Like he's never yeah. gonna live that down, and he has uh, MJ. Yeah, MJ is just consuming this series like a fan, and, and we do get a see a clip of him being interviewed in his baseball clubhouse after the Knicks win Game Seven, and he's talking about how you know he just wanted to watch this in private because he didn't want anybody to start speculating that he was going to come back. How much do you think it? it probably ate away at Michael to watch the Knicks finally beat the Bulls without him. Yeah. I mean, it, it was, I'm sure it was tough. I'm sure it was tough watching that whole series, but you know, Jordan being Jordan, he probably couldn't pull himself away. You know, I did appreciate the fact in the editing that we cut from showing the actual game to then showing Jordan watching it in real time. The other thing I loved about that scene is you could see Mike's UNC XL practice shorts hanging in his baseball locker. So you know, clearly those were multi-sport as well, which was pretty awesome. Yeah, all I'm saying is if, if I was a teammate of Mike in Birmingham, a lot of his equipment would go missing overnight. That's what I'm um, saying. Like every yeah. day he would come in and he'd be like, where's all my shit? Why is it all gone? <laughs> you know, and like none of the teammates would snitch on each other because they would all like take turns, you know, like day three is like, okay, now you get everything and tomorrow I get everything, you know, and just, just load up. I mean, it's not like, Wilson was going to stop sending him bats. He obviously, in one scene, they show it. He has like a Wilson pro model Michael Jordan bat, which is amazing in and of itself. No, you don't understand, Russ. I'm talking like if he breaks his bat in at bat, like I'm running out and telling the bat boy to fall back. Like I'm picking up the pieces. Oh, dude, I'm taking his empty Gatorade bottles. I mean, come on, man. Like the, the merch thing was like probably just starting back then. But I mean, that market already existed. I would definitely, if I was a player for the Birmingham Barons in 94, I would have an empty Gatorade bottle like in my trophy case right now and be like, yeah, Michael Jordan drank from that when we were teammates. <laughs> so we, we flash forward back to 1998 and we get the rest of the first round series against the New Jersey Nets. The Bulls win a close game to 97, 96 to 91 and then finish the series off in New Jersey in game three and our boy Scott Burrell has a huge game 23 points 
9 of 11, all because uh, Michael was calling him an asshole and all kinds of different names. You know, we have to just give full credit to Michael for that. And there's a cool scene afterwards where Michael meets some of Scott Burrell's uh, friends. I think one of them was his college teammate. And, and Michael just out of nowhere quips out, hey, UConn has a great women's team. Eh? <laughs> which, is, which to me was like, I don't know why the other guy laughed. Like, to me, that's just like a good observation. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't think there was any, like, you know, diss in that. But I don't know. They took it as a joke. The early 90s were a different time. Or the late 90s, I'm sorry. I didn't, this is also where, like, the jumping back and forth in time starts to bug me. Because it's like, you go through all the buildup of Burrell, and then we go th- back to 93 for this whole, like, you know, Scotty Pippen thing. And now we're back at Burrell. So it's like, I feel like Scott Burrell's great game in the playoffs should have immediately followed the segment where they talked about Jordan giving him a hard time. Like the editing starts to get a little rough, but I was happy that, you know, obviously Scott was able to have his moment. And then, you know, we're obviously we're, we're covering some of the same ground again because they asked BJ Armstrong if he was a nice guy or BJ poses the question himself with, than the longest pause in cinematic history before saying he couldn't have been nice. And it's like, well, all right, you're right. Yeah, and, and this gets to the last scene, which I think everybody's going to be talking about when this episode comes out, is, you know, present-day Michael is being asked, and I believe this is probably Jason, the director, you know, he asked Michael, has your intensity come at the expense of you being perceived as a nice guy? And, you know, I, I do want to read some of Michael's quotes here before I get your take on this scene. And he says that winning has a price. Leadership has a price. You know, he pulled, I pulled people along when they didn't want to be pulled. I challenged people when they didn't want to be challenged. And I earned that right because the teammates that came before me didn't have to endure what I endured. And they show a montage of him getting beat up by the bad boy Pistons and then every other team. And, you know, he says that the one thing about me is that I never asked people to do anything that I didn't fucking do. And he says that if people are going to say that I'm an asshole and I'm a tyrant, well, that's you because you never won anything. Listen, man, he was speaking directly to me and I was, you know, I felt like I was being attacked personally, to be honest. And then, and then Mike, you know, starts tearing up and he says, if you don't want to play that way, don't play that way. And he, he is visibly shook by answering this question and he calls for a break in the interview. And that's the end of the episode. Yeah. I mean, the current day Mike stuff with that was brutal. I mean, you can obviously see like how passionate he is about it. And it's like, you know, you get him, there's two moments in this episode where he breaks into tears and one's over the murder of his father and the other is over the intensity of his competitive nature, which is like, you know, a a bit of an eye opener where it's like, man, this dude is, he's 57 years old. He hasn't played a competitive NBA game in nearly two decades and he can still break into tears over just like how seriously he takes this. Yeah, there's there's no one else like that. And, you know, even going back, the one thing that like I still cringe at they, during the clip of him getting beat up, there's one where he goes in for a dunk against the bullets and Jeff Rulin just takes him out of the air and lays him out. You know, I think that might have been in his first home game. You know, and at one point I talked to Rod Higgins, who was a teammate then about it, and they basically thought he was dead. Like, he just got housed. And, yeah, this was something that happened to him forever. Um, But some of it, like, you know, this was one of those parts of this documentary where you actually literally feel bad for him. It's just like, he took everything like this and, like, you feel bad for him, but you also feel bad for his teammates because it's like, 
for them, I could imagine it's like, well, yeah, we weren't there. We we're, we were 15 years old. Like, what do you want? You know, like you couldn't, there was just no way to satisfy him at all. Yeah. I think there's no denying Michael's competitive nature. And I think on the next episode, we're going to get into how um, seriously we take some of the slights that he was inventing throughout his career to motivate himself. But, you know, watching this scene, you're right. Like I did feel kind of bad because I think there's a part of Michael that doesn't understand why people choose to view his leadership style in a bad way. Like in his own way, he thinks that this is the only way that, that, you know, you can approach the game and to win. Uh, And like, I'm also curious, like, you know, the, the, the line that, that killed me and that I had to go back and watch like three or four times was, the thing about being a tyrant and well, that was about you. You didn't fucking win anything. And it's like, dude, do you understand? Like the people who are talking about you like this, they did win. They won with you. You know, it's like, it's BJ, it's Will Purdue. It's, you know, and these guys like went through the fire and made it to the other side. They did win championships and they still look at you that way. Like, I, I don't know that the, 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 you didn't win anything line was the one part of that that really bothered me where it's like, I don't know. I mean, that that's just like going over the line a little bit for me. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. Talking about and pulling for... people who didn't want to be pulled and challenging people who didn't want to be challenged. That's the stuff I look at with Pippen where it's like, you know, you can be better than you think you can be. And that like, yeah, I get it. I, I highly recommend it. Anyone who hasn't read, uh, Wright Thompson did, a, did an ESPN profile of Michael Jordan when he turned 50. And, uh, you know, Michael does talk a little bit about the, his competitiveness and a lot of other things. It's, it's a real good glimpse into how it's been so hard for him to let go of, of his competitive nature and his competitiveness that he just built himself up on uh, during his career. So before we wrap up this episode, did you have anything else you wanted to add about episode seven, Russ? No, I think, I mean, I think that basically covered episode seven. I mean, we're, we're getting into this, you know, sort of groove of seeing how these episodes work with multiple jumps backwards in time. Shout out to Slaughterhouse Five. I think they're uh, got some Tramalfadorian editing going on here, you know, and, and just slowly giving us little bits of 97, 98. You know, obviously we're going to get to the next playoff series in the next episode. And then, you know, eventually the conference finals and the finals, you know, we are kind of squeezing in where it's like in the very beginning, you're like, oh, a 10 part series. Like they have tons of time for all this. And now we're like, wait, there's only three hours left and there's so much they haven't talked about. Yeah, well, we'll definitely touch on that in the next episode. That does it for us for episode seven. Thanks again to everyone for listening. As always, you can find After the Last Dance on iTunes, Spotify, and any other platforms that you use to listen to podcasts. I want to give a shout out again to Soul Savvy for giving Russ and I a platform to discuss this documentary, and we will catch you on the next episode. And if you don't want to play that way, don't play that way. All right, break. Yeah, you're the loser. You're the loser, Russ. You never won anything, bro. The sneaker game is tough if you're in it alone. Getting the latest pair of hype sneakers is becoming increasingly difficult these days. As soon as you try to purchase, the shoe is out of stock. If you want to improve your skills, you need to learn the tricks of the trade. Be smart and get equipped with the right tools and information you need to help you cop the sneakers you want. Soul Savvy, the exclusive sneaker community.